welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and in this episode, an exclusive interview with Kevin Rudd, two-time Australian Prime Minister, who has generated more than half a million signatures for his petition calling for a royal commission into the power of media baron Rupert Murdoch down under. For God's sake, you should see what happens to anyone in this country if they raise a question about the Murdoch media monopoly. It's like being put before a firing squad with rusty bullets every morning. Murdoch is, of course, an immensely powerful figure in the UK media landscape as well. So we'll also be hearing from Nick Davis, the award-winning British journalist who uncovered the phone-hacking scandal at the Murdoch-owned News of the World and a fierce critic of his political influence. The underlying problem here is that if you try to challenge Murdoch's power, you discover that he's already got too much power to be successfully challenged. Before all that, just a reminder that the Byline Times is an independent news source, answerable only to our readers and listeners. There's no Rupert Murdoch or any other media mogul backing us, no big corporations buying influence through advertising. Instead, we rely on people like you to subscribe to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. It is a great read and costs only £36 a year, a small price to pay for honest, independent journalism. Find out more at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. So let's start with Kevin Rudd, Australia's Prime Minister from December 2007 to June 2010, and again for a brief period in 2013. His online petition calling for a royal commission to look at media diversity in Australia has attracted more than 500,000 signatures on his country's parliamentary website, a record. He has also won the backing of Conservative rivals, such as the Liberal Party's Malcolm Turnbull, another former Aussie PM. When I spoke to Kevin Rudd this week, I asked him why he had set up the petition. In my period as Prime Minister of Australia, we had obviously quite a lot of engagement with Murdoch. What I found in the period uh, from about six months after my election, uh, and certainly in the years following, was uh, Murdoch becoming progressively hostile, uh, both in his editorial and news coverage, of practically all policy directions of the government, particularly those uh, concerning climate change, particularly those concerning our management of the global financial crisis, where, like all governments around the world, we had to borrow in order to to keep the economy uh, afloat, but also particularly in relation to critical pieces of national economic infrastructure like broadband, which represented uh, a potential challenge to Murdoch's pre-existing cable-based Foxtel Entertainment Network in Australia. So a combination of ideology and a combination of business interests began to rear their ugly head as it became progressively more hostile towards the government. In the period since I left office, uh, since uh, 2013, what we've seen also is the um, Murdoch Press in Australia, which have 70% of the print readership in Australia. In my state of Queensland, uh, 100% of the print readership. We've seen them become progressively abusive of their monopoly powers. In 17 of the last 17 federal and state elections in Australia, they've campaigned viciously for the Conservatives and viciously against the Labor Party. And so it's gone too far. The abuse of monopoly powers has become too great and too widespread. 
And unless we act to change the media ownership model in this country, I do fear for the long-term health of the Australian democracy. The petition calls on the parliament to establish a royal commission in order to hang a lantern on the problem. That is, to expose exactly the way in which Murdoch manipulates news, or to quote his son, legitimises disinformation. James Murdoch's words chosen most recently in an interview with the New York Times. Second term of reference is to examine other models around the world in democracies to maximise media diversity, uh, not just in relation to Murdoch, but all the other competing media platforms as well. In the first part of that conversation, you talked about the way he opposed some of your policy decisions. So, for example, you signed up to the Kyoto Protocol. You withdrew Australian troops from Iraq. Some people might say that the hallmark of a free press is having the liberty to disagree with the government of the day. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've grown up in an environment in Australia where the overwhelming concentration of media ownership across our country in the 80s and the 90s and the noughties has been pro-conservative. And it's always been difficult for a centre-left progressive party to be elected at the federal or state level. But that's one thing. The second thing is way beyond the um, political interests of one particular party, that's the centre-left party here. There is the fact that nobody in this country should have a monopoly on 70% of print. Nobody in a state like my state, Queensland, which largely swings the results of every national election, should allow 100% ownership of the print media in one state. And therefore, the monopoly is a question of principle, not a question of how the monopoly is used. But then finally, for the future of our ability to conduct a rational national conversation about any public policy challenge, the question for us becomes this. Murdoch's global predisposition, whether it's the London Sun, whether it's the New York Post, whether it's the Sydney Daily Telegraph, is the same. It's the conflation of fact with opinion. And therefore, there is no longer anything called news reporting. What we're simply having is um, opinion reporting dressed up as news. And we end up where Trump took us, which is everything, therefore, is fake news. And if we get to that stage in our democracies, the British democracy, the American democracy, the Australian democracy, we start to be in terminal trouble because there's no longer a common factual basis upon which our polity can have a rational discussion about our different opinions, ideological or political or otherwise, about which way our country should go. So it's for this set of reasons, which are structural and not just partisan, which underpin the action that I've taken. I think people will be really surprised, perhaps shocked to hear that in the state of Queensland, Murdoch has a 100% monopoly on print journalism. Is that really true? If it's not 100%, it'll be 90 something. But uh, I'm born and bred here. I'm a third generation going on fourth generation Queenslander, and I'm probably an eighth generation Australian, a criminal stock second fleet before anyone asks. Um, <laughs> but, but the bottom line is this, if you travel around my state of Queensland, for Brits who are familiar with the geography of this place, the Cairns Post is a Murdoch paper. Moving down the coast, the Townsville Bulletin, the next major city, is a Murdoch paper. The Mackay Mercury is a Murdoch paper. And you go to the Rockhampton Morning Bulletin, it's a Murdoch paper. You go to the Bundaberg News Mail, it's a Murdoch paper. You go to the Gladstone Observer, it's a Murdoch paper. You go to the Sunshine Coast Daily, where I grew up, it's a Murdoch paper. The Brisbane Courier Mail, 
the uh, statewide newspaper and Murdoch newspaper, the Gold Coast Bulletin and Murdoch newspaper. And I've missed out most of the country ones on the way through. They're just the regional centres. So what happens is there's a concentration of the newsroom as well for most of these uh, outlets in the state capital of Brisbane, where the copy, in large part, is written in a central political newsroom. And so, for example, when I get attacked, which I get attacked regularly in the Murdoch media for various crimes against humanity, and whatever the crime of the week happens to be, then you read the papers up and down the uh, coast or around the rest of regional Australia. The stories are identical. They just they come off like a, a cookie cutter. Bang, same headline. Uh, one last week was Rudd has questions to answer. And you could read that in the Geelong Advertiser, the Townsville Bulletin. You could read it in this, uh, these publications right across uh, Australia. That's just bad for democracy. Yeah, that loss of media diversity as newsrooms have become concentrated in, in ever smaller areas. Here in the UK, as well as his newspapers, he has radio interests. He has a station called Talk Radio, Talk Sport, Times Radio, connections with all of those. And of course, in the UK, the broadcast media is more heavily regulated. What's his position in terms of broadcast media in Australia? Well, it's interesting uh, that many of our regulatory arrangements we've inherited from you guys. And so you're right, the broadcast media here has regulations. Print media, much less so. So in the broadcast media of the principal television networks, though he sought for a long time to try and buy one, uh, he's not been permitted by what has historically been described in this country as the cross-media ownership laws. However, he has uh, bought the equivalent of um, Fox in Australia, which is called Sky, and he is trying to turn Sky in Australia into Fox. It is every bit as bad as uh, Hannity and Tucker Carlson and the rest of them, but with uh, obviously an Australian angle. And they simply soak up and reflect, frankly, the uh, Murdoch Trumpian line from Fox and they blurt it out here. So that's the effort there. And then, of course, it's their online platforms as well. But in Australia, because it's a smaller market than the UK, we're only 25 million people here. What happens across the rest of the country in other electronic media, radio, television, and online, is that the Murdoch print media forms the basis for the daily news and sets the agenda, determines the parameters of the debate, poses the questions to be asked. And if in every state Murdoch tabloid newspaper, I've just mentioned my own state of Queensland, but the tabloids are the Brisbane Courier Mail, the Sydney Daily Telegraph, the Melbourne Herald Sun, the Hobart Mercury, the Adelaide Advertiser, these are all mini London suns, okay? And some of them are maxi London suns. And so if they throw a, um, something onto the front page of all those papers, Ken Rudd, axe murder of the century, it is very difficult to avoid that becoming the story of the day in radio and in television because it agenda sets. That's the insidious impact across the other media. Yes, it then sets the agenda for what the talk show hosts are going to be discussing in their radio programs or the TV stations and so on. I'm just intrigued to know, when you came to power in 2010, did you have to do what Tony Blair did and, and court Rupert Murdoch and seek his stamp of approval before you became Prime Minister? Yeah, I went and saw Murdoch when I was leader of the opposition. Uh, probably in 2007, I was elected in the end of 2007. 
uh, as Prime Minister, and I became leader of the opposition at the end of 2006. So yes, um, I've um, been completely upfront about the fact that I went and saw Murdoch. And back then, the uh, Murdoch media coverage in Australia was probably about 70% anti-Labour. And my mission statement was to try and get it down to 50%. And so I simply made the pitch. I said, this is what we stand for, this is what we're going to do. And I'd appreciate if we could have something beginning to approximate a level playing field. However, upon being elected, let me just say this, no one can point to any action on the part of my government which in any way serviced Murdoch's either ideological policy or business interests. Not one. Well, I um, wondered that. Did, did you in any sense feel that you, in those discussions, were being asked to compromise or to change your policies in any way to suit Rupert Murdoch? Or was it the case, as perhaps people might think of in terms of Blair here, kind of fitting your policies to appease or appeal to Murdoch so that he would give you his backing? No, Murdoch's a brutal pragmatist. He could see that my leadership and my party was likely to win the election. He did not want a doctrinaire hostile, I presume, in office. And so my mission statement was, how do I reduce the hostility of his papers going into an election? Not to get them to back them. And in fact, memorably during 2007, unlike as revealed in the recent three-part BBC series on uh, Murdoch, which we've watched here in Australia as well, Throughout 2007, when I was leader of the opposition, the Murdoch newspaper tried to knock me out, probably on at least three occasions, with confected scandals, seriously confected scandals of one description or another. So there was no easy ride, let me tell you. It was really rough. And they only basically decided to write a pre-election editorial saying, well, you know, you could vote, you could vote Labor this time. When they finally worked out, there's no way to stop you. <laughs> uh, but in office, to go to your direct question, to be fair to Murdoch, he did not ask me to do anything. I presume his editors assume you imbibe that. Maybe it's my convict heritage, but I'm a bit thick. I didn't quite imbibe it. But certainly the policies we pursued were hostile to his interest and his ideology. We changed uh, the workplace laws in Australia to make it fair for working families and to prevent the further Americanization of the Australian industrial relations system so that you had fair pay and fair conditions. And most particularly for the lowest pay. Secondly, we acted immediately on climate change. Thirdly, we began withdrawing troops from Iraq, which was, as you know, his ideological um, bonding point with Blair and others and with Bush in the United States. And fourthly, on top of all of that, I began rolling out a national broadband network, which he concluded was an existential threat to his commercial interests with his cable-based Foxtel Entertainment Network in Australia, because we were going to give fibre optic to the premises nationwide as a nation-building project, which of course would enable Netflix and others to come in. Though, of course, this was not even material to our considerations. It was just because we were doing broadband for economic and social development purposes, not what movies people could watch. So no one has accused me in this country, and they accuse me of most things, of ever doing anything in office to uh, advance Murdoch's A, ideology, or B, business interests. I think Rupert Murdoch has described you, hasn't he, as thin-skinned. <laughs> That's how he's kind of dealt with some of your criticisms of the, the concentration of power. That's just because he's not used to people fighting back. Seriously. I mean, Murdoch's a thug. Murdoch is an absolute thug. 
and he's a bully. And he trains these editors to become bullies and thugs. You've seen that uh, in the three-part BBC series. That model uh, he perfected first in his Australian papers. He then took it to the UK, Whopping Plus, The Sun, then later The Times. And then, of course, you've seen it in the New York Post and most spectacularly through the performance at, at Fox in the United States. So I don't know the case in the UK, but in Australia, what I've certainly picked up in my long years in public office, public life now, is that people are frightened of him. They're fearful. Um, there's one guy, a former editor working for Murdoch, who said memorably in the BBC series, having the Murdoch press descend on you is like having a, an entire division of the SS unleashed on you when they want to take you out. And that's what it's like. And guess what? People in politics, left and right, people in business, people in academia, people in other institutions, learn very quickly that the best way to avoid having your character shredded into a thousand pieces on the front page of the paper is to give Murdoch a very wide berth indeed and not to ever criticise. So when Murdoch says, I'm thin-skinned, for God's sake, you should see what happens to anyone in this country if they raise a question about the Murdoch media monopoly. It's like being put before a firing squad with rusty bullets every morning. (laughs) Have you been surprised at the enthusiastic take-up of the petition by the Australian public? I have. Um, we've cracked a, an Australian record for an online petition. Um, we did it in 28 days. More than half a million Australians out of a population of 25 million. Not bad. I suspect the real number is closer to a million because the Parliament House website, which hosts this um, electronic petition, effectively just couldn't cope. And we know on the first weekend we put it up there, there are about a million visits to the site trying to get on. So I suspect the number is probably somewhere between half a million and a million. That's a lot of people, probably a lot of people in the UK in terms of um, uh, signing a petition as well, even though your population is probably two and a half times the size of ours. But was I surprised? The honest answer to your question is yes. I've been banging away on this for the last couple of years in a a lonely and and solitary campaign online with simple hashtags, which is Murdoch Cancer on Democracy, Murdoch Royal Commission, Murdoch Conservative Party Protection Racket. Um, (laughs) It's clear, though, from what you say, Kevin, that, uh, of course, you're concerned about the concentration of newspapers in any one person's hands. But from your point of view, there is concern as well about Murdoch's ideology, what he stands for politically and what he pushes through his newspapers politically. Well, you see, you in the UK don't have a Murdoch monopoly problem, neither do the Americans, because you've got other networks, you've got other newspapers. But what unites the three of us in the English-speaking world is the fact that the bald-faced far-right agenda, driven by ideology, profit and power, which are the the three aphrodisiacs of uh, Murdoch's life, this is common across our three countries. It's worth of a passing reflection. How is it that we can have re-elected progressive governments in Canada and New Zealand in the Anglosphere? Answer, no Murdoch press. Whereas the nature of our national political conversation in our three countries has been shaped and defined by this hard right ideology, which at its core is Hayekian in terms of the role of government, 
zero tax or negligible tax, negligible legislation, kill Leviathan, kill the state, screw the poor. That's kind of the script. And then you have these other elements which graft on, which is a compliant government which will always make it easier for my business interests. The Conservative government in Australia, by the way, in the current coronavirus crisis, and even prior to that, would you believe handed over a cheque to Murdoch's Foxtel Entertainment Network for 40 million Australian dollars to, quote, pay for the broadcast of women's sport in this country. I mean, this is outrageous, but that's the power of the man and what he gets away with. The concentration of the media is, as you say, different in the UK and in the United States. Nevertheless, Murdoch is still a very powerful figure across both newspapers and broadcasting in the UK. Would you hope that some kind of resistance to Murdoch of the kind that you've generated in Australia might be picked up here? Well, look, uh, being uh, an Aussie, I've uh, focused on the home patch. Even though I normally work in New York, I run an American think tank which focuses on, frankly, US-China relations. That's what I normally do. I simply pick this up because I think it's a matter of fundamental national importance in my country. Now, what you Brits and what the Yanks choose to do about all this, given your own Murdoch dilemmas, is a matter for you. I'm not about to tell you what to do. But I've got to say, I mean, the amount of incoming uh, interest I have out of American media and out of British media on what is just spontaneously combusted in Australia is, again, for me, surprising. Surprising. I think, you know, our people across um, our various countries, they are quite smart. And after a period of time, our people work out when they're starting to be fed absolute nonsense. And I think Murdoch has just gone too far in the arrogant swagger of what he thinks he can shove down people's throats. Sitting in New York, telling people in the UK and in Australia how to vote. Go figure. Kevin Rudd, talking exclusively to the Byline Times. And a reminder that the Byline Times doesn't rely on media tycoons like Murdoch, nor do we depend on funding from any corporate or political source. We rely instead on people like you. Taking out a subscription, you can get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, outside of Australia, Rupert Murdoch's global interests have spanned Asia, Europe and the United States, where he was the founder of the right-wing Fox News channel, which, until very recently, was an ardent supporter of Donald Trump. In the UK, his companies own The Times newspaper and the radio station of the same name, Talk Radio and Talk Sport. There's Virgin Radio, The Sun, although that is the subject of a long-term boycott on Merseyside because of its coverage of the Hillsborough disaster. Murdoch helped put football behind a paywall with Sky TV, and although he's now sold out his interest in the company, there's been talk of him creating a UK version of Fox News. His best-selling Sunday tabloid, The News of the World, was forced to close in 2011 after revelations about phone hacking. Award-winning journalist Nick Davis uncovered that story. What does he think, from a British perspective, of Kevin Rudd's campaign? I think that what happened to Kevin Rudd when he was the Australian Prime Minister was that Murdoch and his senior henchmen in Australia worked very hard to oust him from power. 
And you see parallels between the fall of Kevin Rudd in Australia and the demise of Gordon Brown as Prime Minister in the UK. With Gordon Brown, they spent months colluding with the Conservatives in late 2009, early 2010, in order to make sure that they got the Prime Minister they wanted. And so what Rudd is saying in a way is, first of all, that Murdoch and his people exploit and undermine democracy in order to achieve specific political ends. Right up to the top of the tree, we'll have the Prime Minister who, who we want, regardless of what voters said. But also, I think he's right to float a second point, which is that the Murdoch organisation in print or broadcast is pumping out falsehood and distortion and unreason with the result that they're polluting the public domain so that it's less and less possible to have rational debate. Because to, to have rational debate, you need to have reasonable thinking and facts. And as long as this tide of falsehood and unreason pouring out of Murdoch's organizations demolishes that or undermines that, you're making it impossible, structurally impossible, for democracy to function properly. Can we not take some heart, though, from the fact that we do have a much more varied and a, a larger media landscape than they do in Australia? Certainly it's true that there are more voices in British media than in Australia, but it doesn't change the fact that it is Rupert Murdoch's voice which is loudest and most powerful. And if you look at this through the eyes of politicians, you can see that over and over again, political leaders recognise, for example, one simple fact that since the late 1970s, nobody has succeeded in being elected as Prime Minister without Rupert Murdoch's support. Now, debate about whether it's a question of Murdoch spotting who's likely to win and backing the winner, or of the potential leader having to trim their policies in order to satisfy Murdoch. And I think the reality is you've got both. So you can see it particularly clearly with Tony Blair. I think that through Murdoch's eyes in the late 1990s, it was clear that Blair had a very good chance of winning the next election. So he starts to, to, to make friends with him. But Blair also recognizes that he needs to keep the old man on side. So you might remember that very early on when Blair is leader of the Labour Party before the general election, he goes to meet Murdoch in Australia, he comes back, and at that point, his party was publicly committed to holding an inquiry into the impact of foreign ownership of British newspapers. Well, immediately Blair cancelled that because it was going to upset Murdoch. And then throughout the rest of his time in Downing Street, Blair is increasingly drawn into Murdoch's world and ends up making huge policy decisions which have got Murdoch's fingerprints all over them. So, for example, Tony Blair wanted to take the UK into the European currency, the euro. It is absolutely clear that Rupert Murdoch didn't want that to happen, and it didn't. And you, in the recent BBC three-part documentary, there was Neil Wallace, who was acting editor of The Sun, saying quite explicitly that it was he who forced Downing Street to say that they wouldn't go into the euro without holding a referendum. That wasn't, that wasn't the elected prime minister's decision. That was Rupert Murdoch's henchman's decision. And of course, the other huge thing is the involvement in the American invasion of Iraq. Murdoch himself was repeatedly directly in contact with Tony Blair. 
He was also acting as a kind of messenger between the White House and Downing Street. These are huge policy decisions and he's, he's interfering directly because he's got too much power. And he shows no sign of having lost his appetite for expansion. So in recent times, we've seen the development of Times Radio, for example, an offshoot of the Times newspaper. Now there's talk perhaps of a Fox News style television channel for the UK. Yeah. So the hope is that the UK version of Fox will not be quite as destructive as the American version has been and is because we have Ofcom, because we have some degree of media regulation. The difficulty is that if you go back to the 1980s in the States, they too had a degree of regulation and an impartiality rule. And a right-wing president, Ronald Reagan, with Rupert Murdoch in his ear, scrapped that requirement. And that enabled Fox News to do what it does now. So I would expect him to attack that regulation through his newspapers and in the corridors of power in order to remove it here as it was removed in the United States. Do you think then that we need to do the same as Kevin Rudd is calling for in Australia and seek a royal commission into media diversity here in the UK to ensure that no one individual, be it Rupert Murdoch or whoever, is too powerful? It's a really urgent need to defend our elected government's right to make their own decisions and to defend the very concept of democracy in the UK. There is an urgent need to push back against Rupert Murdoch's power. But I would make two rather negative points. The first is that when it comes to royal commissions, really we've already had ours in the shape of the Leveson inquiry. And remember that he inquired not just into criminal behavior by Murdoch journalists, but also specifically into their interference with our politics. And he published his findings factually and Fleet Street stamped all over his report. Or to put it another way, they basically drowned it in falsehood and distortion and aggression. So it wasn't acted on. The second point that relates to that is that a couple of weeks have now passed since Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull announced their petition to try to press for a Royal Commission in Australia. And what you can hear from the Keir Starmer leadership of the Labour Party is nothing, nothing. It was open to them within the first 12 hours to say, and we think so too. And there are very good reasons why they should have said that. They're frightened of Murdoch. They're frightened of his newspapers. And in, in a sense, what happened to the Leveson report is, is a powerful warning signal to Keir Starmer and the, and the Labour Party leadership that, that Murdoch and the rest of Fleet Street still have that power. So instead, it looks to me, as they're going down the route to try to placate Murdoch, they're certainly not going to follow Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull. You see, Messrs Rudd and Turnbull have the great advantage of being out of power. Starmer is building up to try to run a government. It's, it, the underlying problem here is that if you try to challenge Murdoch's power, you discover that he's already got too much power to be successfully challenged. Nick Davis. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and you can read more from me at Byline Times. I'll be back with the podcast in a fortnight. Before I go, just a reminder that the Byline Times is an independent news source, holding to account those with money and power. We can only do that because of people like you subscribing to our monthly newspaper, the Byline Times. 
It's a great read and it costs just £36 a year. A small price to pay, I'm sure you'll agree, but honest, independent journalism. Find out more at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. See you next time.